Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 again this evening. We've been uh, teaching uh, for the last number of weeks a series that we've entitled Faith Seminar. Um, that the reason we're calling it Faith Seminar is because I just didn't have some catchy title to give to this series. Uh, I really had in my heart and still do to, uh, to kind of go through the subject of faith and kind of turn over every rock and take our time and, and uh, talk about certain uh, elements and aspects of the subject of faith. Uh, maybe in a little bit deeper way than what we have in, in some of the previous series that we've, uh, that we've taught this subject. And we teach on faith a lot. Uh, if you're um, part of the healing school services, we're teaching on faith and healing in some form every Sunday evening. And then, of course, we've done some uh, other series uh, on it as well. But I don't think you can do too much teaching on the subject of faith. Because anything you want to receive from God, you're going to have to receive by faith. James says the only way to receive is to receive by faith. The Bible bears that out over and over again. And, and it seems to me that faith is a subject that for most of the church world they think is some ethereal, nondescriptive, nebulous something or other where people say, well, I, I believe, I have faith. But they don't know that the, the mechanics, the specifics of faith, how to get it, what to do with it when it comes, and, and, uh, and how to fight the good fight of faith. So, uh, so we're going to go with this again in Mark chapter 11. Um, it tells us about how Jesus cursed the fig tree. Jesus cursed the fig tree on Palm Sunday, which was, uh, um, what would that be, five days before he goes to the cross. And uh, he curses the fig tree and, and says, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the next morning they pass by. And Peter calling to remember it, seeing the fig tree dried up from the roots, Peter calling to remember it, said, Master, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Now the translation says, Have the faith of God. Well, what kind of faith would God have if not the God kind of faith? So one, uh, one paraphrase is not really a translation, but a paraphrase of this scripture says, have the God kind of faith. Now, we pointed out before, but I think it bears repetition. Um, Jesus has been with the disciples for three years. He's taught over and over and over again about faith. He's shown them that faith is the necessary ingredient for the power of God to work. Uh, you, you just can't, you, you can't overemphasize the place that faith has held in Jesus' ministry and the, that they've experienced with him for three years. Like I said, this is the last week of Jesus' time here on the earth. And Peter, even though he doesn't ask a question, at least one is not uh, uh, recorded for us, there's an implied question that Peter has about the fig tree, what happened and how. My question for them is, how do they not know? How can they have been with Jesus for three years and not know that when Jesus spoke to the fig tree the day before, something supernatural was going to happen, and that was the operation of faith? But nevertheless, they, they seem not to. At least Peter doesn't. And so Jesus answers, knowing that, uh, that his time is short. He knows when he comes into Jerusalem that this is the last week of his life. He knows that he's going to be crucified and, and um, uh, go to the cross to pay the price for all of mankind's sins. He knows all these things. He knows his time is short with the disciples. So if you were Jesus, knowing these things, knowing the, the time is short, knowing you're just a few days away from the cross, knowing that these guys are going to scatter when you go to the cross, when they see you hanging on the cross, and knowing the importance and how necessary faith is in every aspect of the life that you're going to bring them through your sacrifice, your death, burial, and resurrection, what are you going to tell them? How important is the thing that you're going to describe to them about this thing called faith without which they can't be saved, without which they can't receive the Holy Ghost, meaning the baptism of the Holy Spirit, without which they can't receive healing, without which they can't receive any of the promises of God, any of the things he's about to pay for in just a few days. How important would this lesson be that Jesus gives them in explaining the basics, the most fundamental subject there is about the Christian life and the new birth and so forth, which is called faith. I don't think you can overemphasize the importance of what Jesus is going to tell them. Jesus very simply summarizes what this thing is that, do, that causes supernatural results and that changes natural circumstances. He said, answering, said unto them, verse 22, have faith in God or have the faith of God. For verily I say unto you, here's his description. Verse 23 is his description. One verse description of what faith is and how it works. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain. So faith must have something to do with saying. That's the first thing he identifies. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Notice he doesn't talk about speaking to God. 
Most Christians put a great deal of emphasis on praying to God and talking to God. That's great. But Jesus talked to things. He prayed. He spent all night in prayer many, many times. But Jesus talked to things when he was living his life. Jesus says that's the principle that we should follow. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Notice he does not say whosoever shall say unto this mountain, wow, you're big. And that's exactly what a lot of people do with their problems. That's what a lot of people do with their circumstances. They say, oh, Father, look at how big this problem is that's facing me. Jesus said to speak to the mountain and tell it what you want it to do. Jesus said to speak to this mountain. Jesus said that the faith that changes circumstances, that produces supernatural results, is a faith that speaks to the problem what the desired result is. Speaks the desired result to the problem, in other words. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Now, please notice, you can read ahead in the rest of the verse. This is the only stipulation he makes to speaking to the mountain. And shall not doubt in his heart. Now, the word heart is a a reference to the spirit. So he's talking about not doubting in your spirit, but to the contrary, believing in your spirit, but believing, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice the importance of words in verse 23. Say to the mountain, believe in your heart. If he's talking about not doubting in your heart, then he's got to be talking about believing in your heart or your spirit. Believe in your heart that the things that you say will come to pass, you will have whatsoever you say. What would you take away as the important element of this thing that Jesus is describing, this most important subject that Jesus is describing in the last week of his life, if not what you say, the words that you speak? Notice he mentions it three times in verse 23. Say to the mountain, believe that the things that you say will come to pass. You shall have whatsoever you say. He's talking about the importance of your words in relation to his explanation of this subject called faith. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Again, notice the only stipulation he makes, and shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. Now, folks, please understand that if Jesus had left out that and shall not doubt in his heart, every word that you speak would come to pass. The only, the only stipulation, the only criteria, the only qualification that he makes about your words coming to pass is and shall not doubt in his heart. So if this is true, and I believe it is, Jesus is speaking. He's speaking on behalf of God. He's speaking the word of God. Therefore, it has to be true. If you're the devil, where are you going to attack people? If you're the devil, what are you going to work on? Well, if I'm the devil, I'm going to work on the one thing that he said would nullify it. And that is the doubt in the heart. But then we're left with the the question, what does that mean? See, if we can learn to guard against doubting in our heart, then we can come to the understanding that everything we say will come to pass. If Jesus told us the truth. Are you with me? That's what he's saying, isn't it? Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Qualifier. And shall not doubt in his heart. But instead believe in his heart. What are we supposed to believe in our hearts? That what we say. Those things which we say shall come to pass. What will be the result? We will have whatsoever we say. The only stipulation. The only qualifier. The only uh, condition that he places on that. Is shall not doubt in his heart. Let's figure out what doubting in your heart is. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 3. Folks, this lesson about faith is one of the most important things you can ever learn because it's the, it's the key to victory or success. It's the difference between victory and defeat. Hebrews chapter 3, let's start reading in verse 8. Paul, I believe, is the writer of the, the author of the book of Hebrews. Whoever it is, we know that he's writing by the Holy Ghost to people that know something about the Old Testament. And he says, harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. He must know that they know what he's talking about. Because he doesn't go into any extra explanation, any additional explanation about this. He's talking about something that all the Jews would know what he's referring to. Now, Gentiles might not. But we've got the Old Testament where we can find out. 
Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, he's speaking for God first person, quoting the Old Testament literally. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now notice, the, compare this phrase to Mark eleven twenty three. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now he says in verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Take heed brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Is there any way that we could conclude anything other than. Doubting in your heart would be an evil heart of unbelief. Are those not the same. uh, Talking about the same things. Maybe using a little bit different terminology. Not much different terminology though. He's talking about the heart. He's talking about doubt versus unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are the same thing, aren't they? So here he says, take heed, be careful that there's not in you an evil heart of unbelief like there was in the fathers in the day of provocation. The fathers meaning Israel's forefathers. In the day of provocation when they tempted God and as a result saw God's works in the wilderness 40 years. In other words, the day that they turned against God and and the, the result of the penalty was 40 years in the wilderness. That's what he's talking about. So what we can find out what they did in the day of provocation when they tempted God and proved him and saw his works as a result of their turning away from God because of their evil heart of unbelief that, that he's warning others, us included, don't partake and, and uh, emulate their same actions. If we can figure out what they did, then we can learn to avoid doubting in our heart so that our words will come to pass. Turn back with me to Numbers. Chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 tells us the story of when Israel has been delivered from Egypt. They've spent about uh, two years, a little over two years, probably about two years and three months in, um, in their trip from Egypt to the edge of the promised land. Now, The reason that they're going to the promised land is because of what God told Moses. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 3. If you want to turn back there, you can. It's not necessary. But Exodus chapter 3 verse 17 tells us a little bit about, uh, uh, is one verse out of the the interview that that Moses had with God when God appeared to him in the burning bush. He said, um, well, let me start in verse 16. He said, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob appeared unto me saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done unto you in Egypt. And I have said, here's what Moses is supposed to say to Israel before even the 10 plagues take place to let them know that we're going to be getting out of here. And here's where we're going when we leave Egypt. And I I have said, verse 17, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt Under the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites or Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Then he goes further and said, and they'll hearken to you and they'll come with you and and we'll go do, you'll go do what I told you to do. So the first time that God appears to Moses in the burning bush, you remember the story how Moses saw the, he was, uh, farming or tending sheep on the backside of the desert i've never been able to figure out what the backside of the desert is but it sounds like a bad place i mean the front side of the desert is not a picnic either but you know you'd assume that backside means something more so moses is in the backside of the desert sees the burning bush on top of the mountain climbs up on the mountain god speaks to him and says take off your shoes you're standing on holy ground and then god tells him i am the lord god i want you to go to pharaoh and say let my people go and so forth but as part of that interview part of that talk that god had with moses he tells him up front here's what's going to happen he gives him some details he goes on in uh uh what is it what is it um 
He goes on in verse 22 and says, Every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall spoil the Egyptians. Verse 21, he talks about how they won't go empty, and then he explains about how that they'll go with silver and gold and so forth. He tells Moses up front, here's how it's going to go. He tells him the end result which is the way the word of God is. The word of God tells you what the end result is. It doesn't tell you every step along the way. But it does tell you what the end result is. And that's what Moses is supposed to tell the children of Israel. Now, this happens, like I said, about two years. And, uh, well, the, there's, uh, there's discrepancy, uh, disagreement between uh, scholars about how long the plagues in Egypt took. There's uh, most estimates are anywhere from six months, to three months to six months, something like that. It wasn't a long time. So if you add that to the two years and three months that we know of that take place after they come out of Egypt, then it's about a little less than three years. So three years before the fact, three years before, less than three years before they get to the promised land, God tells Moses to tell the people, you're going to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Now, there are people that live there. Again, in verse 17, notice who lives there. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. But it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Now, turn with me over to Numbers chapter 13. or I assume you're still there. Look at what happens when they get to the promised land. Moses takes one person from each of the 12 tribes of Israel and sends them into the land to spy out the land. He wants them to come back and tell them, what did you find in the land? What should they expect? Based on what the Bible tells us, Moses has already told them. Well, they know it's going to be, or they've been told it's a land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to check that out. But it's also the land of the Hivites and the Amorites, the Jebusites, the, the Canaanites, and whatever otherites I'm left out. Right? That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Numbers chapter 13. We'll start reading in verse 26. And they, speaking of the 12 spies, went and came to Moses, came back to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. And brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. The the previous verses tell about the cluster of grapes that they took with them back to the children of Israel. Back to Moses in the group. Uh, It was so big that they were carrying it between two people on on a stick between them. They were bringing pomegranates back. It was certainly a land that flows with milk and honey in the the, uh, sense that it was fruit like they'd never seen grow anywhere before. They spent 400 years in Egypt and boy, Egypt never grew anything like this. And they came and told him, verse 27, and said, notice what they say. We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Verse 28, nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south and in the Hittites. Uh, and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. Now, up to this point, all they have done is reported what they've seen. Is any of this or should any of this be news to anybody? Is any of this any different than what God's already told them before they ever got there? Before he ever delivered them out of Egypt in the hand of Pharaoh? No, it's exactly what God said. Notice the next thing. There must be something else going on beyond just the words that are, that are recorded, though, because it says in verse 30, Caleb stilled the people before Moses. So apparently the information that's being reported, and it's just information to this point, factual information. The information must be starting to get to people because apparently there's some kind of clamor that Caleb has to still. He, there's something going on that he has to quieten down. But Caleb stills the people before Moses. And said, notice Caleb says something. He said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men, verse 31, but the men that went up with him, 10 of the 12 spies, said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Verse 32, and they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, now, remember where we started, Mark eleven twenty three. Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, only condition, only stipulation, shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. 
Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, we know the evil heart of unbelief is being spoken of of these people at this point in time. So notice again what we just read in verse 31 and 32. But the men that went up with him, with Caleb, said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report. Here's the evil heart of unbelief. The evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying. Everybody say the word saying. What is doubting in your heart? It's something that you say. Doubt of the heart has to do with what you say. Just like faith has something to do with what you say. Remember Jesus explaining faith. Have faith in God or have the faith of God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So both faith and an evil heart of unbelief or doubt in the heart, whichever term you want to use, they're both scriptural. Both faith and doubt of the heart have to do with your words. God says that that, uh, doubt is evil. He says it's an evil heart of unbelief. He said they brought up an evil report. What does God consider to be evil? They didn't come back cursing. They didn't come back selling illicit drugs. They didn't come back doing all the things that the church says you can't do and shouldn't do because this is evil. The evil that God spoke of and tells us about and records for us in the book of uh, Numbers, chapter 13, is the words of their mouth. God considers anything that he says you can do spoken against by saying you can't do to be evil. And that's all they've done. Caleb says we can do it. We're well able to do it. The only thing that they speak against God that's recorded here in these verses is they said, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. And God said it's evil to say you can't when he says you can It's evil to speak contrary to what he says in his word. Well, if the church would get the the right picture of what is evil and what is good, then we'd turn the world upside down. But they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which were come with the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Now skip with me over to chapter 14. Let's start reading in verse uh, 6. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Those are two of the 12 spies that went into the land to spy it out. Which were of them that searched the land, rent or tore their clothes, and they spake. Notice now they're going to talk. Caleb has said a little bit. Now they're both going to talk. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. Just like God said. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give us a land, give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land. Now notice he's talking about two things. He's saying don't rebel against God and don't be afraid of the people. Now I would submit to you from what we just read in verses 32 and 33 of chapter 13. The reason they're rebelling against God is because of the people. They're afraid of the people. But Caleb and Joshua pull them apart. He said don't rebel against God. How have they rebelled against God? By what they said. They said, we can't do what God said we can. Do you realize that if God says you're righteous and you say you're not, you're rebelling against God? Do you realize that's just as evil as what they did? Do you realize when the Bible says, when Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and you say you can't, that's rebelling against God, and that's an evil report? Do you realize that anything that you say that takes sides against what God says, whether it's because of your feelings, whether it's because of the circumstances around you, what somebody else says, what the doctor says, whatever the case is, anything you say contrary to the word of God is an evil report and it's a rebellion against God. No wonder the Bible has so much to say about watching your words. 
Caleb and Joshua said, verse 9 again, Only rebel you not against the Lord, neither fear you the people of the land, for they are bred for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with them, with us, fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Now notice who wanted to stone the people that were in faith. It's not the world. It's the religious people. They still want to stone you if you operate in faith. They'll still want to stone you. The people of God will still want to stone you if you take sides with God's word. If you say you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, they'll not only want to take sides against you, they'll want to stone you for it. I've never had anybody take a position where they say, well, I I just have a different opinion about that than you do. But I've had a lot of people tell me how wrong I am, how ungodly I am, how arrogant I am, and so forth. It's been almost 30 years, and they've been throwing rocks ever since we started the church. The people that started wanted to throw the rocks 30 years ago aren't around anymore. First, uh, February of 1986, I went to a uh, uh, pastor's, local pastor's fellowship breakfast thing they had around here. And they were kind enough. There was about uh, 12 guys there. And they were kind enough to tell me that a faith church would never make it around here. Well, I thanked them. You know, what do you do? They just told me no uncertain terms. They said, a faith church won't make it here. Okay. There's not a one of those pastors that are left. There's only a couple of the churches that are left. Because, folks, faith is not a thing on its own. It's the byproduct of God's word. And God's word will go anywhere. It'll make it no matter what. But there is something for religious people, for people that refuse to take sides with God's word, there is something offensive about it when you do. And, boy, they want to fight about it. So what do we see about the children of Israel? The evil heart of unbelief were the words that they spoke. Therefore... Mark 11, 24, 11, 23 again. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart must mean not say anything to the contrary. Not say anything to the contrary. That would have to be what it is, wouldn't it? Not say anything contrary to the word of God that your faith is based on. In other words, if, you're talking, if you speak healing, the receiving of healing... Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you can't start talking sickness. If you speak prosperity, you can't start talking lack or poverty. Now, this is what, turn with me over to James chapter 1. This is exactly what James is talking about as the pastor of the church at Jerusalem when he was talking about the operation of faith. Notice verse 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. This word ask is the same word in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 that we've talked about on Sunday mornings for the last several weeks. It means to call for, require, or demand. It does not mean to request. So when he's talking about the the operation of faith, he's talking about the words of your mouth. We could substitute this word ask, or for this word ask, we could substitute the word speak. But let him speak in faith, nothing wavering. What is he talking about wavering in? Your speech. He's talking about wavering in your words because wavering in faith is doubting in your heart, which is speaking contrary to what you first said in faith. So where he says, but let him ask in faith, he means speaking the words you speak. Let him speak in faith, nothing wavering for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man, the man whose words are not consistent The man who speaks blessings and curses, the man who speaks healing and uh, sickness, the man who speaks poverty and prosperity, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So what's the one criteria, the one qualification, the one stipulation, the one condition that Jesus makes on this operation of faith in the last week of his life and explaining to his disciples? Keep your words consistent. Speak to the mountain and don't say anything to the contrary. But instead believe that the words that you say will come to pass. You'll have whatsoever you say. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 4 now. With that in mind, 
Jesus gives a, a, a story, a parable, so that we can understand how to guard against the devil's attack against our words. Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the story of the sower sowing the word. Verse 10, and when he was alone, they that were with him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them in verse 11, unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. In other words, he's saying this is the key to understanding the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is everything Jesus purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's righteousness. And because of righteousness, it includes healing for the body. It includes provision, material provision. It includes peace. It includes well-being in every area. Jesus paid for you to be well and healed and whole and, and prosperous and good in every area of life. He did not come to do something for your sins, something for your spirit, and then leave you to the attacks of the devil unarmed. It was a complete salvation. The only part of salvation that we have not yet received is our redeemed bodies. That's it. Everything else about eternal life is ours now. That's why the Bible says to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. In other words, lay hold on the blessings of God here. Now, there's nothing you can do about getting your redeemed body while you're here, but you sure get a well body before you go. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that Jesus' price on the cross, the price that he paid by shedding his blood, was for our sins and iniquities, the chastisement of our peace, our well-being, including material well-being, was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. So it's a package deal. Now, you can, take it, you can treat it like a, a buffet if you want to and take the parts you want and leave the parts you don't want, but that's not what Jesus died for. He died for a complete salvation. Well, some people say, but God's bringing this sickness on me to teach me something. That means if, it, if God needs sickness to perfect you, the, the, the blood of Jesus wasn't sufficient. That means if God needs to do, use any other circumstance or any other circum, situation to bring you into perfection, then the blood of Jesus was not sufficient for salvation. The blood of Jesus plus something else is necessary. And nothing else is necessary to add to the blood of Jesus, folks. It was a perfect and a complete sacrifice. Anybody that takes that position, whether they know they're doing it or not, or rebelling against God because they're speaking against God's word and taking the sides against his word. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's everything Jesus purchased for us. So he says this is the mystery. This, the understanding the key of this parable or what the, the meaning of this parable is the key to understanding the kingdom of God. Verse 13, know ye not this parable and how then shall you know all parables? In other words, knowing this one is the key to understanding everything else Jesus taught by parables too. The sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who which they, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness and have no root or depth of earth in themselves. And so endure, but for a time afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the care of this world and the, the, the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. Luke 8 verse 15 says, and keep it. Hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30 fold, some 60 and some 100. Now, what is Jesus saying? Well, remember that you can't receive anything of God except by faith. So the key to understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God is to understand how faith works. And that's what this parable is all about. It's showing you how the devil is an, it will attack your faith. Now, what's the condition of faith? Mark eleven twenty three, and shall not doubt in his heart. What is doubting in your heart? It's the words that you speak. So the devil uses these elements, these situations, these circumstances to try to change your words what does he use notice in the, the by the wayside he comes immediately and takes the word which was sown in their hearts in other words he talks some people out of it before they ever even start speaking the word he brings the same thought to all of us oh you can't believe that 
There's no way that can be true. I remember some of the first times that I heard the things of God uh, being preached and the truth of the word concerning healing and blessings and and prosperity and uh, some other areas. I thought to myself, this is too good to be true. Well, that's where a lot of people stop. A lot of people have the thought that this is too good to be true and they just pass it off and never investigate to see. That's the wayside. Then it says, these are they on stony ground who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. In other words, that means they accept it, maybe begin to speak it, but they have no root in themselves and so endure for a time. The word root literally means no moisture. Paul said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Well, what did Paul plant? He planted the word of God. He preached to them the first time the words that they'd never heard. What did Apollos preach? The same word. But since he came along teaching something that they had already had preached to them, that's considered watering. So hearing the word of God is watering it. In other words, it's telling us that the stony ground people don't continue to hear the word. They hear it once and they may have started in it. They may say, oh, yeah, this is great. The pastor says we're supposed to speak the word. So they say it, but they don't continue in it. They don't keep hearing the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So they become easy targets for the devil. What target does it or what... uh, Uh, weapons does the devil use against these easy targets jesus tells us when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake in other words the devil's going to try to change your speaking he's going to try to make you doubt in your heart in other words change the words of your mouth speak words of doubt instead of words of faith words takes taking side against god's word instead of with god's word by bringing circumstances chest trials and troubles or turning people against you and it's all designed for one thing and that's to make you doubt in the heart we've already identified from the scripture that that means to change what you say the devil will bring circumstances in your path to make you change your words how many times have you started believing god and then all of a sudden something came out of nowhere unexpectedly who could see that coming I've had people tell me over and over again, Pastor Mike, as soon as I started believing God, all hell broke loose. Well, that's the way it works for most of us, if not all. Well, why? Because the devil's trying to make you change something that you're doing. What? He's trying to make you change the words of your mouth. He's trying to make you change what you're saying. Because doubting in your heart is the only way that your words won't come to pass. It's the only way. It's the only, it's the only condition. It's the only requirement. It's the only stipulation Jesus made. Otherwise, he said you'd have whatever you said. So he's got to work on your words. Now, he won't tell you that's what he's doing. Because if you come to realize it's all about the words that I speak, you've got him. Because when you know that, you understand the mystery of the whole of the kingdom of God. You understand the key to receiving anything and everything from God there is. Verse 18, these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. That implies that they begin to speak the word. They begin to speak. Maybe they're, they're continuing in the word, but other things creep in. If the devil can't keep you from hearing and hearing and hearing the word to build your faith, then he'll bring other things in your path to try to choke the word out. He can't stop the word from working, but he'll try to choke it out with other stuff. What does he use? The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts or desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Notice what the devil uses. He uses cares of this world. Now, notice it doesn't say evil things of this world. It says cares of this world. See, a part of the operation of faith, a part of the life of faith is to keep everything in right order. There are things that we all have to do, things that we all have to take care of, responsibilities that we have. But you can't let that keep you out of the Word of God. You can't let that take you away from your time in the Word so that you're growing in the things of God. You can't let those things take you away from the the attention that you give, the right attention that you should give to the Word of God so that your faith grows. The deceitfulness of riches, that's pretty easy to understand. We all need money. Everybody has to pay the rent. Everybody has to pay the car payment. Everybody has to pay whatever bills you owe, light bills and uh, water bills and trash pickup and so forth. We've all got bills to pay. God didn't say ignore your bills. Don't worry about it. Just spend all day in the word. He didn't say that. We do have responsibilities and therefore we have to work to earn the money to pay those things. 
But you can't let that get in the way. You can't let that over, uh, consume your life and take over the time that is right and appropriate to spend in the word and confessing the word. You can't make riches your pursuit. You can't make wealth your pursuit. The good news is if you put the word of God first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, meaning material things, will be added to you. Well, there's a deceitfulness to riches. Some people want to get rich at any cost. Some people want to use the prosperity message to get rich at all costs. It doesn't work that way. You can't put riches above. You can't put money above the word. It won't work. But if you get the word in the right place in your life, then God will bless the work of your hand and make your money even go further. Are you with me? Finally, the last thing he says is the lust of other things. I've said this before. Usually when the the word lust is spoken of, we think of sexual connotations and so forth. But the word lust just means desires. In other words, the devil will try to give you a greater desire for other things than he does the word. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people believe God. They didn't have two nickels to rub together. Believe God to prosper. And then when they prospered, they got a place on the lake or the river or got a boat or uh, a cabin or something like that. And then wound up spending all their time at the cabin instead of in the word and in church. I'm pretty sure that's not why God gave him a boat at the river or a cabin up up on the river. What happened? Their desire for something else became greater than their desire for the word. And notice what happens when that takes place. It chokes out the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it or keep it. In other words, they keep things in right order. They don't let afflictions or persecutions change what they say or what they believe. They don't let the cares of this world enter in and choke the word. They keep the word more important to them than than anything else. Don't let any desire for any other thing become greater than their desire for the word. And they they don't start chasing after money. These are they likewise which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and keep it, and bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. It seems to indicate that there's a difference even in good ground. There are degrees or measures of good ground. Levels of good ground. Which means the more attention you give to the word, the more attention you give to the development of your faith, the more you watch your words and speak what God's word says about every situation, the the better ground you'll become. Because it's all about one thing. It's about the words of your mouth. It's about the words of your mouth. Let me close with one, uh, one example. Turn with me over to uh, Matthew chapter 15. Let me show you an example of faith in this context. I'm going to start reading verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. That's outside the, the boundaries of Israel, by the way. He did very little uh, ministry in Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. That uh, phrase, thou son of David, is a messianic term. Whenever anybody came to Jesus and said, thou son of David, they knew or or they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. So she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. What is she speaking? Her words are speaking her request that God would deliver her daughter. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She couldn't get him to speak to her. And finally, he does speak to her, and he doesn't tell her anything good news. I'm not sent to the lost, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I'm not sent for you. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, I knew it was that way with you faith preachers. You're just out for big offerings. Then came she and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. Has she changed her tune? Has she changed what she started off saying, even though she's run into an adversity? And, And to me, that sounds like a pretty big obstacle to jump. Jesus says, I'm not sent to you. That'd send most everybody away right there, wouldn't it? But he answered and said, it is not meet or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now he's calling her names. What does she do? 
How does this woman handle adversity? How does this woman handle obstacles to what she desires to receive and what she's spoken to have? And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. One of the places, there's only a couple of times where Jesus identified somebody as having great faith. One was the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus, uh, they came to Jesus and said, I understand authority, so speak the word only. Jesus said, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Here's another case where he said, daughter, great is your faith. Both of those people were outside of the people of Israel. One was a Roman centurion. The other is a, a, a Canaanite woman. Probably a, a, a of, she probably has some Jewish heritage, but inter, a Jew that has intermarried with somebody else because of where she lives and so forth. But Jesus said, daughter, great is your faith. Now, what makes her faith great? What made her faith great was that adversity did not injure her faith. That's what great faith does. Great faith stays steady. Great, this is the great faith that James is talking about. Let him ask or speak in faith, nothing wavering. Yeah, unless Jesus says, I'm not sent for you. Nothing wavering. Well, unless Jesus says, it's not right to cast the children's bread to dogs. Nothing wavering. Now, folks, I got to tell you, the problems that you and I run into, the situations that occur and the, the circumstances that occur, none of this measures up to what she's hearing from Jesus' lips herself. I've never had God say, no, you can't have that. Have you? Of course not. Because the promises of, uh, in, in him are yes and amen. She's hearing from Jesus pleading his case by saying, I'm not sent for you. It's not right to take what belongs to Israel and give it to you. But what does she do? The one thing that she does is she maintains the same position of her faith and the same words that she speaks. And that's able to overcome even who Jesus was sent to when he was here on the earth. The bottom line is this, folks. You speak in line with the word and there is nothing in hell earth or heaven that can stop you from having what the Bible says is yours. We'll close with Mark eleven twenty three, where we started. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, shall not speak anything to the contrary, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have. Whatsoever he saith. He shall have whatsoever he saith. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, it's impossible for the word of God to fail. Can I tell you something the Lord showed me just yesterday? You remember the story of Thomas in John chapter 20? It says that uh, the disciples... Uh, we're together when Jesus appears and Jesus breathes on him and says, peace be unto you and breathes and says, receive the Holy Ghost. And then their, their spiritual lives were changed. That's when they were born again. But it goes on further in John chapter 20. It says, but Thomas wasn't there. And he said, except I see the print of the nails in his hand and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He didn't say I can't believe. He said, I will not believe. And Jesus appears unto him. Short time after that, they're all together. And he says to Thomas, Thomas, reach hither, put your hands in the print of the nails and thrust your hand into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Be not faithless, but believing. Be not faithless, but believing. He was faithless because he refused to accept the testimony of Jesus' resurrection. He was faithless because he rejected the word, which was the original preaching of the gospel. One of the first, first instances of the preaching of the gospel from the other apostles, the disciples, to him. He rejected it. I will not believe unless I can see it and feel it for myself. And I, that's all, that story has always bothered me in a way because I thought, Now, Lord, why would you treat Thomas differently than you do anybody else? Why wouldn't you appear to some of my loved ones? And enable them to see and believe when you expect the rest of us to believe without seeing. In fact, Jesus does not commend Thomas in the situation. He said, because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those which have not seen and yet believe. There's no blessing to the people that believe because they see. 
And you know what the Lord did? The Lord spoke to me about. And you judge this for yourself. But the Holy Ghost spoke to me and said, that was done in order for the word of God to be true when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 in saying, all these that you've given me, I have kept. I haven't lost one of them except the son of perdition. If Thomas doesn't get saved, that statement Jesus said doesn't become true. And Jesus will even appear, if necessary, to make his word come true. Now that blesses me. God will do whatever is necessary for his word to come to pass. Well, he wouldn't do it for somebody else and not do it for you. Jesus tells us very specifically in John chapter 15, you don't have to pray to the Lord in our day because you can pray directly to the Father because the Father loves you just like he loves Jesus. So if he'd do it for Jesus to bring his word to pass, he'll do it for you to bring yours into being. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. Don't change what you're saying, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. I've got a witness in my heart, folks, that we're coming into a day where Christians are going to realize the authority that we have in the name of Jesus and the creative power of our words. We're going to start having what we say. Well, we've always had what we said, but we're going to start using our words in such a way that it brings the plan of God to to bear on the earth. It's a new day. Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. What would make the church more glorious than having what they say? Speaking in line with the word of God to bring in God's plan and, and purpose into being. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We appreciate so much the opportunity to walk by faith. We feel so sorry for people that have always had it easy, Lord. Never had to believe for anything. What a privilege it is to believe you, to believe the promises of God to be true, to stand on your word by faith, to fight the good fight of faith, to resist affliction, persecution, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things, so that we stand strong on the word, believing that that which we say shall come to pass and have exactly what we say. What a privilege, Father. We are born of God, and according to your word, we overcome the world. And we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Thank you, Father, that there's nothing in this world, there's nothing of this world that can overcome us because we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, that healing and health is ours. We thank you, Father, that blessing is overtaking us because we put your word first. We thank you, Father, that even as we speak your word, we can say just as Jesus said, the words that we speak are spirit and life, and they always come to pass. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.